Welcome to our Perimenopause What the F podcast, brought to you by the Perry community. In this podcast, your host, Rachel Hughes, talks everything, and we mean everything, perimenopause. She helps us navigate through all our What the F perimenopause moments and all, is this normal? Questions. Rachel talks with perimenopause experts, thought leaders, and inspirational voices of the community. To connect with other perimenopause warriors, download our free Perry app. You can find the link in our show notes. And now, let's dive right in. Hey everyone, this is Rachel Hughes of the Menno Memos here with another episode of Perry Talks, where we like to deep dive into all things perimenopause and menopause, bringing you the science and the sisterhood. Okay, today is a day unlike any other because I'm going to be speaking with one of my most favorite people in the world, OBGYN and co-founder of the platform Tribe Called V, Dr. Shiva Gofrani. Dr. Gofrani is committed to the increasing of women's knowledge in order to decrease their anxiety as it relates to their health. And let me just add, she is my gynecologist. She knows parts of me better than I know them myself, okay? And listen, one of the many reasons I love Dr. Gofrani so much is that when I walked into her office and told her many years ago, I'm not feeling so great, I think I might be perimenopausal, she believed me. Dr. Gofrani listened and she introduced me to the range of options available to me. She was reassuring, she was empowering, And I know how many of us don't have this experience. And so I'm looking forward to all of us learning from her today, increasing our own expectations every time we walk into a doctor's office. This is going to be a terrific hour. For future episodes, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And now let's get started. I see. I see. <laughs> no, I just texted. I said, do you want me to jump on a minute or two ahead of time? How are you? Did you text me? I'm sorry. Oh, no. I, I figured would... I was going to get on anyway. I just did another quick, like, I just went on to Instagram and said, oh. come on over now. Come on, come on over. How are I'm you? Monkey. I am good. I, I can't lie. I'm exhausted, but like, I this know. is <laughs> Honey, don't feel bad. I mean, I don't say it for you to be like, no, I don't, don't feel bad. Like, this is my baseline. This is what I do. I know. I know. We're so grateful to have no, you. I'm here. excited to be here. Like, I'm right? glad you guys asked. Yeah. Um, so, for those who don't know you, this is Dr. Shiva Grofrani. She is an OBGYN. I, I have I have a little intro for you, if I may. I'm ready, yeah. Um, you are an OBGYN since 1999. You have an incredibly busy practice. I laugh because, so first of all, I'm laughing because, you know, you're my gynecologist and all I do is talk about you like, I, you know, she's my gynecologist. She's my gynecologist. Like I, like I have you personally stashed away somewhere. I'm so proprietary, but to know you is to love you. Um, Unless you're children, as I say. You are also one of the founders, along with your partner, 
um, who is a nutrition coach, which Mm -hmm. I think is very exciting and phenomenal and just terrific of Tribe Called V. Yeah. A platform that seeks to increase women's knowledge in order to decrease their anxiety as it relates to their female health. Um, so thank you for being here. I have a bunch of questions. I know there are people here. Um, and I was just speaking with a woman who is on the call, um, who I know, you know, among, among all of us who will listen to this call, be so helped by your words. And one thing I shared with her, which I was going to share with you later again, um, was, I didn't mean to launch into this right away, but I think it's so important that, that women be able to advocate for themselves, um, especially walking into a physician's office. Mm-hmm. It's such a vulnerable time. I was commending this woman um, for, you know, although she's feeling like really super shitty that she is stepping out and finding someone hopefully who can work with her and work for her um, and help her improve, you know, how she's feeling. But I, I said to her, you know, one of the reasons I love you so much is because you are that person. You are that very rare (laughs) gem of a physician who, when I walked into your office at 43 and said, I'm 51 now And I was kind of like, you know, I'm not feeling great. I'm not doing well. I don't feel like myself. My mother says she thinks I'm in perimenopause. And we talked and we talked. And you said, well, how are you feeling? How are you doing? What does it look like for you? Are you doing anything? You know, like, are you are you finding ways to help yourself? And at the time, I was taking a lot of supplements more than I take take now. And some things were helpful. But I, you know, I wasn't quite all the way there. And I wasn't quite sure if I was ready to, you know, try other options. And you trusted my word. And that was what made such a difference. And I I just want to encourage people out there listening um, to find someone who trusts your word. And if you walk in and you say, I feel like I'm going crazy or I can't stop sweating or whatever it is that you be listened to. It makes all the difference. Um, So that was a way long uh, intro. (laughs) Um, I have so many comments already about what you (laughs) Here we go. Um, I'm going to start. We're going to launch in. Okay. Uh, I do want to say, can I say something first before you launch? I want to say this. First of all, I'm so a, a flattered to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also like, so impressed that you and, and like all of the platforms that are not medical, but are addressing this in a way that frankly, I really not only appreciate because it takes some of the pressure off. So we don't have to be the only ones talking about it, but also you guys are doing it in what it seems like in a very authentic, accurate way. And I say that specifically because I think what happens to many of us in as humans with ovaries, right. Is that we have different symptoms of whatever it is. Maybe when we were younger, it was endometriosis or PCOS or something where we had symptoms. It was nothing maybe dangerous, but we were led to believe that like, oh, it's nothing. Oh, it's fine. In that, you know, I always say like that kind of paternalistic, like pat on the back, like you're okay, honey. And I think that what the medical community means when they do that, 
we could be onerous and say like, they mean to demean us. But I think in reality, they mean to, they think that they are calming us down and helping us feel safe. When in reality, I say all the time that what the women I know want is not to be paternalistically like, hey, you're okay, honey, no big deal. I think we want collaborative information where we can understand why we feel the way we feel, helpful, hopefully understand that it's not dangerous, but also understand that there are ways to help ourselves. Because the what medical community has not done a good job of that, so many complementary alternative practitioners, many of whom I love and trust, yeah. but many are um, selling people a lot of very yeah. expensive, again, products, supplements, all these things that don't ultimately make you feel that much better, but yeah. make you feel like now I don't know what to do. Like now, you know, and I think, but because that those practitioners get to spend more time with their patients than a medical doctor does, it feels like someone's listening. And so this is a long-winded way of saying, we do need to do a better job of listening in the medical community, but time is limited. Unfortunately, the medical community is, is, you know, not, it's, it's, I think doctors are in a crunch because the medical field is so limited now. Um, but so, so platforms like this are so helpful. I mean, that's really why Jenny, my business partner, and I started Tribe Call V because we want to have more platforms like yours yeah. where we're talking about things that are for the most part, very basic and standard, but no, none of us ever as women got explained all of these things when yeah. we were growing up. So someone needs to explain it in a way that makes sense that helps you understand that you're not dying. It's nothing pathological, but that you legitimately have these symptoms and we can help fix them. So, so thank you. So perfect segue into our first question, which is what is perimenopause? We're going to start with, we're going to start with the basics, the bare bones tonight. Well, and it's so funny because today in the office, among the many patients I saw, one of them was now I would say like 44, 45, and I said to her a couple of times, like, I'm going to use the P word, the perimenopause. You know, I always refer to it as like the other P word. Yeah. I said, again, it is not something onerous. I don't throw that word around in a casual, like, you know, it's not a big deal. I throw it around in a, oh, it's actually not a pathological condition. It's actually an explanation that I think, if we talk about it more openly, can help bond us all as women. Oh, someone has their phone on. If I can say to you, let me predict that you have XYZ symptoms. And you're like, how did you know that? Yeah. Then I think we all feel better that, oh my God, it's not something crazy. So I always kind of start at the, at the definition of menopause to backtrack. And I'm purposefully trying to stop myself from saying words like I start at the end with menopause because menopause is not the end of any part of our life. It is just right. the middle of our life nowadays, right? Because many of us are living until our nineties. Mm-hmm. So menopause is defined as a year with no period. So once you've had a year with no period, assuming for, there's no other reason like thyroid or anything, then we can say you are in menopause or menopausal. And then the minute that year is done, right? So it's really like a day that was the end of one year yeah. without a period is menopause. Right. Anything after is post-menopausal, but we kind of just throw around the word you're menopausal or you're in menopause. The confusion becomes that up to 10, maybe more years prior to that one year without a period, you can be perimenopausal, which just means your hormones will fluctuate. And instead of a nice like sine wave, I describe it as like the FSH and LH hormones, right? That dictating our estrogen and progesterone, instead of those going up and down in a nice predictable sine wave, I always jokingly say perimenopause instead is predictably unpredictably predictable, right? Like you don't know what's going to happen. It might be up. It might be down. It might be up, up, down, down. It might be up and down for six months and then back to normal. And the good news is none of it is dangerous, but the bad news is it's unpredictable and making, and it can make you feel lousy 
because it's so up and down and it can last again, 10 plus years, which means by definition, the minute a 40 year old woman walks into my office and says, Shiva, my boobs hurt more than usual. I can feel my ovulation more than usual. I'm a little hot and sweaty or schwitzy at night. My libido isn't great. I think I'm gaining a little bit of weight. I feel like I'm going to bludgeon my family two days before my period. Like any of those symptoms on top of it, like my period's a little bit weird. It's heavier, it's lighter, it's longer, it's shorter. Like any period issues, any of those symptoms would say to me, okay, you're 40 and you're having these symptoms. You're probably starting perimenopause. It right. doesn't mean oh, you're going through the change early. And I right. think that as women don't know it, I have to tread lightly initially. Cause if I say like, oh, you're probably in perimenopause, they think I'm saying you're going through menopause early. And I'm not because no, not in the last 10 plus years. So if you're 40, you start having those symptoms. You still probably won't go through menopause until 50 or 51, which is very natural. Yeah. But it means that we have to cope with those symptoms and we can't prove that it's perimenopause. I don't know if that's in your list of questions, but no, that's so that's actually super helpful. And, and, and again, speaks to a moment that I had with you in your office where you said, cause I, I said, well, can we test it and see where I'm, I am? So like, I, I, cause I had no idea. I knew it could last a while. I didn't expect it at 43. I thought it would start at like 49. You know, we have all these ideas, right? And you said, well, <laughs> you know, we we kind of could, but not really. It's not going to give us the information that you're really looking for. And it's true. Like what I was looking- well, You really listened to me and oh heard God, me. Are you kidding? I love it. No, no, no. You, you were so um, just enormously sensitive to my sensitivities, you know, and I, you, I really heard that it's, it's a futile exercise. You know, you're going to be going like this for the foreseeable future. And, you know, what's that? No, nothing. nothing. Oh, I'm sorry. So I think somebody must have a, a, something, a volume on. Um, and, and I think, you know, you're, you're reminding me though, actually just of, the, again, the woman I spoke with right before you jumped on about this idea of shame, which is entirely what you're talking about, but it makes me think about it because this idea, even that a 40 year old would walk in your office and say, what do you mean? What are you saying? What do you mean? What do you mean? You know, that to me feels sort of tethered to shame in some way. And, well, and think about it. Like when you said at 43, I wouldn't have assumed that it would start. I thought it would start later. And it's because, and we can link this back to shame that because we never talk about this as women, because first of all, in health class, we didn't even talk about ovulation or your period or anything. Right. So, so women don't learn any of the basics, which is again, why we really want to be encouraging people to understand this, because I think the more I can talk openly and frequently and, and somewhat casually, but in detail about these very natural parts of our lives, I can debunk the anxiety and stress and shame while still addressing it and saying, let's, ex let's acknowledge that your hormones are going to be up and down, but we can help figure out what will help you feel better. But I think from our mothers in particular, most of us never learned any of this or what we heard or learned was, oh, you go through the change around 50 and that's it. So we thought you get up to 50, then you have like a day or two of change and then you might act crazy <laughs> right. And that's it. When in reality, again, it's a whole process. And I think the more women know that that condition is so common. Like I always joke that if you hear something that you're going through is common to the entire like human or female experience, aren't you less anxious about it? Right? Like the last thing you want to hear 
in your medical world is, huh? Yeah, never heard of that. Like that's <laughs> like to me that's, that's not reassuring, right? Like this yeah. is the one time in your life you don't want to be unique. So if yeah. I can say to any forty plus year old coming in, like any of these symptoms that might be mild, they might be more severe, they might fluctuate. They're likely perimenopause. What I cannot do is prove perimenopause, but I can systematically disprove other things that might mimic it. For example, thyroid dysfunction can mimic perimenopause. So we shouldn't assume every 45-year-old who's sweating or flashing or has mood changes is in perimenopause. She might also have thyroid dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So yes, you should have your thyroid checked at least once a year, if not more frequently, if you have a lot of changes, right? And if you see your internist every year, your thyroid will be checked. Okay. Second is if you're having heavy or irregular bleeding, it's probably perimenopause. But again, we should make sure that it's nothing else by sending you for a pelvic ultrasound to look at the uterus and look at the uterine lining. Those are kind of the two most obvious things. I mean, there's certainly subtle other things that could mimic it that are, that are not as common. But if we've kind of just ruled out those two things, and then overall, you, again, elicit any of those symptoms we talked about, then it's fairly safe to say, probably perimenopause. Now, now that we've determined that there's nothing wrong with you, that this is natural, but you feel crappy, let's figure out how to help you feel less crappy. And each patient might feel a little different because someone might not like their hot flashes. Another person might not like their vaginal dryness. Another person might not like her irregular bleeding. Some people don't like all those things. So there are ways to help you feel better, even though this is a common thing that we go through. So, so what would be some of the ways, because the other thing I'm thinking that was a big deal for me was anxiety, mm-hmm. depression, um, sort of general malaise. That was a big deal. And it still kind of, you know, winds its way around every once in a while. Um, but what, what are some of the solutions for some of these things or, or can things kind of be pulled um, you know, to create just the right solution. Well, and so again, first of all, let's say you did say it's mood and I'm really exhausted and I have more malaise than usual and less energy. Please make sure that you've either seen your internist or your gynecologist can send you for your thyroid to make sure you're an anemic. You're not B12 deficient. We're going to talk about D vitamin D3 in a second, but so let's assume that there's nothing medically wrong, right? Other than perimenopause, which is not medically wrong. It's just a natural crappy state, right? Mm-hmm. Then The gamut is pretty wide, meaning we could go completely Western, the most Western way to treat this, meaning the most like traditional medical way to treat it would be the birth control pill. Assuming Mm -hmm. you are not smoking and because if you're over 35 and smoking, we wouldn't put you on the pill. Assuming that you don't have a really strong family history of like siblings who had strokes or heart attacks or blood clots at young ages, other than that, or high blood pressure, you could be on the birth control pill. It's very safe. And by evening out your hormones, by stopping ovulation, imagine that irregular up and down that I was talking yeah. about. Now that'll be evened out. So that yeah. means mood changes, the hot flashes, feeling the schwitzy at night, mm-hmm. the irregular bleeding, the ovulation pain you might have, the breast pain you might have, all of that will be improved because you're evening out your hormones and stopping ovulation. Mm-hmm. Now on the flip side, I wish I could say the pill helps with weight, which many of us struggle with weight, especially during perimenopause. For some people, they're lucky and the pill helps, but by and large, the pill is not going to help with weight. Right. Um, the pill ironically does not at all help with vaginal dry. Well, you guys all call it dryness. I say inelasticity. And that's okay. another part of the conversation we'll talk about after. Okay. Is if your vagina 
is not as elastic during sex and it hurts, or you're getting, for example, frequent urinary tract infections from that lack of elasticity from the changing estrogen, you would think the birth control pill would help that, but the pill doesn't actually help that. Topical vaginal estrogen helps that. Okay. Uh, So there's a few things that the pill won't help, but again, the pill is the most direct and easy. So if a patient says to me, how can I make myself feel better? And they have that laundry list of symptoms. I would say, I get it. A lot of women feel like they want to do things more holistically, but let me just say that the birth control pill, low dose pill, very safe, will likely help you. And you could stay on it until you're 51, 52, like in that up to age 55-ish is kind of our outer limit. And then you and your doctor together will empirically decide to go off of it. And you might've drifted through menopause and missed all the drama. And you're (laughs) <laughs> you said this, you said this to me and the only reason I didn't do it and we decided it may not be the best thing. I had been on the pill for so many years yep. and I had sort of been getting, increasing migraines. Yeah. So, so migraines and yeah, sometimes they get better on the pill, but they can get worse. And if you, especially if you have migraines with aura, like yeah. where you're having, then yeah. you should be on it. But yeah. But outside of those patients, like still millions of women can take it. And the good part is it decreases ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, and colon cancer. And there is a potential small increased risk of breast cancer, but net net decreasing those other cancers is so valuable. And at least for your breast, it's only a very small increased risk and women are ideally getting their mammograms. So that that is critically important. What you just said, it decrease being on the pill. Yes. Decreases the risk of uterine, colon, and ovarian ovarian cancer. Because it stops ovulation. So it decreases risks. And that is well-defined across the board. Breast cancer, if you happen to have some breast cancer cells that are estrogen receptor positive, then giving you the birth control pill might increase the risk. The okay. truth is there are millions of patients who get breast cancer without the birth control pill or yeah. hormone replacement. But again, we have to disclose there is a small increased risk that is legitimate, but it's not such a large risk that in someone who otherwise feels horrible, it's worth withholding the pill from them right. because we know that while I never want to kind of say like, oh, breast cancer, not a big deal. It's a huge deal. Nobody wants breast cancer or ovarian cancer, yeah. um, but we surveil for that by doing mammograms, right? Okay. So it's like anything else. Each patient has to decide what risk is valuable to them, but to explain it as if it's like something high risk is wrong. And in the old days, we only had high, we had high dose birth control pills, but now we have so many low dose ones that it's very, it's very safe and very worth trying it. So that's like the most Western thing. And then if you only have, let's say heavy, irregular bleeding, then you could do the hormone IUD, the progesterone IUD, mm-hmm. which will not help any of your perimenopause symptoms other than the irregular heavy bleeding, but that's okay. a great option. If that's the only symptom, which it might be, mm-hmm. the, the Liletta or Marina it's called, it's a progesterone IUD. You could do something called a uterine ablation where we, it sounds really dramatic, but we burn the uterine lining under a little bit of anesthesia. And again, that will only be for the heavy irregular bleeding that some people have as their only perimenopause symptom. So those are kind of the most, like I said, Western medical things to do. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, in theory, I should also add hysterectomy because if you're having heavy irregular bleeding and nothing else works, you know, that is that is certainly a very life-saving, impactful measure that some women will need. The vast majority of women nowadays don't because we have these alternatives. Okay. And that will only help with the bleeding. That okay. will not help with the other symptoms. 
The other symptoms, you could go the opposite extreme and do acupuncture. You can see a naturopath or an integrative doctor who really can change some of the um, daily practices that you're doing, either with supplements or nutrition. And honestly, I think those things are really helpful as well. The difference is many women, when they're in this perimenopausal time, especially because so many of us are having babies older, are also like in the thick of dealing with our children and all these other things. So I think it sounds really nice to say, go do acupuncture, go do, you know, all these other mindfulness techniques, mindfulness techniques, but it's also like a big burden, right? You're feeling yeah, it may not be realistic. Yeah. So I think it's valuable to kind of consider all of them and not pigeonhole yourself and say, I'll only take the pill or I'll only do acupuncture. Cause then I think you're setting yourself up for not success, right? Because it's continuum. You might need to try different things and at different points, you might need all of them. Yes. I love that. So, so, okay. So that's run the gamut sort of Western to integrative, if you Mm -hmm. will, of Mm -hmm. solutions that are offered. You brought up something when we were going back and forth about this time that you thought should be discussed a lot more, and that is vaginal estrogen. So could you take us through why and what it's treating, what it's not treating? Yes, because there's so much misconception. And I want to remember to talk about um, some nutrition and some supplements that I think are like easy. You know, I was joking. Yeah, you brought up vitamin D. I was going to get back to that. So let's talk about that after. So, okay. There's so much misconception and actually it makes me so sad that, that I feel like even in my patient population, I'm like, have you not all heard me talking about your vagina? And like, you don't need to suffer. So when it comes to perimenopause and menopause, most women will have some symptoms, but typically within about five years after menopause, most symptoms will dissipate. When I, when I say symptoms, I mean, hot flashes, night sweats, those typical symptoms. Once you're done with menopause and you are postmenopausal, all this perimenopausal, like up and down is going to be done, right? Because now your hormones are low. You are no longer ovulating. And so that up and down is gone. And many women will have hot flashes for a while, but then within about five years, it'll get better. That means that from anywhere from 40 to 55, you might need to be managed with hot flashes. So it's not insignificant, but at least we can say it will likely improve on its own or with medication by five-ish years after menopause. Okay. okay. I just have to stop you there for a second. Cause yeah. I think this is also super important to know. And I didn't realize this. Yep. I sort of thought that you are postmenopausal day mm-hmm. 366 yes. without a period. Yep. And then things just start to kind of like wind down like pretty quickly. And that, you know, <laughs> it depends. Well, that's better than what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say, oh, then you're hot flashing forever, which is not oh, true. Meaning, sorry. and everyone is different, and not everyone dissipates after five years, but not everyone, and, but not everyone stops on day like 366 and is done. Yeah, In other words, yeah. the once you're done with perimenopause, then your up and down is done, and then it's just down, right? Okay, can I ask you a question about the pill? Mm-hmm. Should you be 53 and you're now postmenopausal, and the pill's been great for you, and you've kind of like you know more or less coasted through the last seven years? Yes, this is all an example. Yeah, um, and you you get off, you, you determine with your physician that it's time to get off the pill because you're, you're done. Yeah. Um, and you're not, you know, you suddenly kind of like, you're not feeling so great. Like, can you, 
can, is, can you continue to take the birth control pill? I guess. Yes. Well, so it's a great question. And actually we also have to, there's so many things to discuss. We have to circle back to like, why would we not check blood work for perimenopause? So we're going to talk about why would we not check blood work? What should you do if you go off the pill and our vaginal dryness and vitamin D3? Those are the things you remember. Okay. So first let's address, let's say you're anywhere from 51 to 55. That's where most of us, I'd say as gynecologists feel comfortable with you staying on the pill, provided your blood pressure is okay. And in that range, what I say to patients is each year, let's decide together. Is this a good time to go off the pill? If you said to me, oh my God, my kid's graduating from college or like I'm moving, then maybe you waited out another six months because you don't want to suddenly stop and find yourself either not in menopause, right? Because you could be 53, sure, go off the pill, And all of a sudden you're bleeding regularly again and you're not in menopause or you go off the pill. You haven't had a period. You actually need a year with no period off the pill to really define menopause, though we can assume at 53, if you've gone three or four months with no period, probably you're in menopause, but then you feel hot flashes. You probably won't feel all of those ups and downs of perimenopause. You probably won't feel all the kind of irregular cyclic mood, breast tenderness, all that stuff. Because again, that comes along with the ups and downs of your hormones. Mm-hmm. Remember your hormones now postmenopause are just down, but let's say you feel like crap again, crap, meaning hot flashes, night sweats, what we title, what we entitle those vasomotor symptoms. Yeah. Then you decide with your doctor, okay, what should I do? I wouldn't necessarily put you back on the pill then because we're assuming that you're postmenopausal. So you no longer need birth control doses. But you could switch into hormone replacement, which is estrogen and, res- and progesterone, but in different doses than the pill. Um, or at that point, just managing your hot flashes can take the form of SSRIs, like Prozac, those things. Yep. So this can help with just hot flashes. Or you can try over-the-counter herbal medications that really actually are impactful. There's one called Relizen that you yes. buy a company. It yeah. really works in our patients. It's Swedish flower extract or bee pollen extract. I always forget. Very impactful, very safe. It can take a couple of weeks to kick in, but it really works. Mm-hmm. Or, and again, this is where I'll throw in my plug for like the nutritional lifestyle changes yeah. that are not, they're not easy, but they're not so hard. Alcohol, caffeine, and sugar. Yeah. And look, for me, I can get away with caffeine, but when I have sugar in the form of bread, rice, pasta, carbs, sugar. Yeah. And I have alcohol. That's where I hot flash. Yep. I can get away with like vodka soda, but if I have a margarita or if I have like wine and chocolate cake, I'm a sweaty. Yeah. But yeah. if my, in my daily life, I'm kind of omitting most of those things and I'm doing pretty well. And then on the weekends when I want to, I've kind of accepted that like, I'm going to hot flash because I want my margarita. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to give it up forever, but I've tested it enough that at least I know I'm in control and that yeah. I can manage my hot flashes by mitigating those things. So again, does that make sense that at 53, you go off, you feel lousy? There are still things you can do and you should, but let's get back to most women's vasomotor symptoms will abate within five years after menopause about the caveat is if you're in surgical menopause, like me, like I had my ovaries removed because of my ovarian cancer, my hot flashes will likely live forever because I was, yeah. Now again, I've managed them actually really well by not eliminating, but decreasing my sugar and my alcohol and vitamin D3. So there is some data in the integrative literature that the sweet spot for your vitamin D3 level for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms, like hot flashes and sweats, is a level between 50 and 70. 
And it's really important to know that because many of the internists and primary care doctors are following evidence-based medicine when they say that a level of about 30 or 40 is considered normal. And it is. But when it comes to the integrative literature and actually a lot of the oncology literature, they like the level. And certainly, by the way, integrative data, absolutely. Like they're aggressive about it. Mm -hmm. But so even the oncology data, they like the level to be in that sweet spot of 50 to 70. And I've tested it myself. When I dip down even to like 45, I get hot flashes. If I've gone above 70, I kind of feel funny. And I don't know, I can't explain physiologically why, but some of the data shows even above 70, you don't feel as good. So I would say to women, you have to ask your primary care if they checked it and what your level is. They don't always check. And it's because insurance does not always cover it anymore. So not being remiss and not doing it, it's just not always covered, but ask them what the level is. It's not enough for them to say, oh, you're normal because you might be normal 40, which is great for everything else but you might feel lousy. And then increasing your vitamin D is really going to be impactful because vitamin D3 is that one vitamin that we always say you can't really get from anything but the sun. It's very hard to get it from nutrition. Even if you're lying in the sun, as I joke, you're not lying naked in the sun every day. (laughs) Right. And patients say, what's the one thing I should take? Vitamin D3. And it's the low hanging fruit. I call it right. It's so easy. You can take your entire one week's worth of vitamin D3 on one day. Because yeah. it's not soluble, you could take it like I take seven pills on a Sunday night if I'm going to be on call mm-hmm. for that week, because I don't know if I'm going to be home or not. Mm-hmm. And that really, really, like I have seen it in myself and many of my patients that makes a difference. So vitamin That's incredible. And, and now this is not just for women who've gone, who've got, had been, has surgical menopause. This no, is for, for everybody, everybody. Well, especially because D3, they know from a lot of the data can decrease breast cancer risk, colon cancer risk. Now they're saying COVID. We know in pregnancy, there's increasing data that it might decrease preterm labor and preeclampsia for children. It's valuable. So really like D3 is just one of those like very standard. It really seems to minimize a lot of of global chronic conditions. So to me, it's like such an easy thing. Like why not take it? And if it's going to make you feel better, it's even better. And if you wanted to add one other thing, by the way, I should like put in my disclaimer. I always forget. Like, I, if I am not your doctor, you should ask your doctor. Um, You're so disclaimed. <laughs> um, but if you want to add one extra supplement, I would say magnesium. Yeah. Because magnesium not only helps the D3 absorb, but if you take the magnesium at night before you go to sleep, it helps with anxiety. Yes. Sleep. Right. Sleep. I, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Yeah. It's very it helpful. Takes, it helps with pooping. And it helps with like muscle cramps. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's like a, it's an easy gimme. Like those two have helped me so much with like, again, my sleep, my anxiety, all those things. So I think it's really valuable and worth doing those. Um, um, I'm just going to pause just for one second. Someone has a question and I just want to let that person know. And you know yeah. that I will ask a question or look at your comment as you know, as we're getting towards the end. So hang tight. The last thing we were going to talk about of the four was why no blood work. Okay, blood work, and then we have to circle back to the dry vagina because that's so important. I will, I will not forget the dry vagina. Oh, that's really important. Okay, so why no blood work? And by the way, like if your doctor sends you for blood work, I don't malign them or blame them. And frankly, many primary cares just do it. And in their defense, they do it because the patient's asking, they're going for blood work. Frankly, this is a long conversation to have with each patient, right? So it's easier yeah. just to just be like, oh, I'll do your blood work. And the range on the lab might say menopause or not. And so they think they're doing a service by being like, oh, you're in menopause. Mm-hmm. What, what patients need, what I want women to understand is, again, during that perimenopause, where remember I said, instead of it being a sine wave of your hormones going up and down in that nice up and down rhythmic sense, they're going up and down erratically. 
And they go up and down as our cycle does every day, every week, every month, right? So let's say I decided that I'm going to take Rachel and I'm going to map out as many integrative doctors or naturopaths do. And again, I don't blame them. I love them, but they'll map out your hormones. Let's say for the whole month, they check your saliva. They do it for different blood tests, maybe even your urine. There's some famous blood tests. I mean, famous tests where they check your urine and they say, look, Rachel, in this month, I saw that your hormones were like up here and down here and your progesterone did this. And that's why you're feeling that way. They're not wrong, but it has not added any value because we could have predicted that that happened based on the fact that you're having irregular like feelings and symptoms, right? So to me, why would I send you for blood tests that are, that are not only not going to um, help management or predict, but they're not even really instructive. I love sending you for work, for blood work or tests that might not change management, but help you understand conceptually what's happening. But in this case, your hormones might just as well look normal in any given month as the next month they might look abnormal, abnormal meaning up, down in different ways. But either way, you're feeling these changes because your hormones will fluctuate every day. So it not only is not valuable, it doesn't change, but I find that it muddies the picture because you might be set, you might be um, informed by your doctor, oh, your hormones look normal. You're not in menopause, right? Because you're 43 and your estrogen look normal and your FSH, the other hormone right. look normal. Right. And now you're led to believe like there's something wrong when in reality, there's nothing wrong. You're in perimenopause and in perimenopause, your hormones might not show up as irregular on paper or they might. Do you see what I mean? So it's because it's a more complicated answer. I think most doctors just don't take the time to explain it. So it's easier to just shoot it off and do it, but that does a disservice because then it confuses the picture more where women are either told they are in menopause when they're not, or they're told that there's nothing going on and their hormones are normal, but they feel lousy. And again, Normal hormones fluctuate and can make you feel lousy. Feels awful. So that's yeah. why I would say it's not valuable to do it. There's a few times where it would be. Like if you're very young and you're having hot flashes, sure. make sure if you're past, if we're like 51 to 55 and we're trying to figure things out, then sometimes we'll do it academically because by that age, you're a little bit more likely to be in menopause. In menopause. Right? Okay. 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 Vaginal dryness. Okay. So the real word is atrophy, meaning labia, your vagina, and even your urethra, the peel that the hole that we pee out of all become atrophic, meaning really? Yeah. This is why women who are peri and postmenopausal are more prone to urinary tract infections, to UTIs, especially after sex, because that you're like, let's say this is your vagina, right? Mm -hmm. And like, let's say that's your little hole you pee out of. Mm-hmm. And that actually from the atrophy, from the la- lack of elasticity, as I call it, the, the hole, the urethra almost like lowers in where it is and is more susceptible and is because everything is more retracted from the mm-hmm. lack, of, lack of elasticity. When you have sex, things rub against the urethra more. Or even like you travel and you changed your soap or you use like scratchier toilet paper. Those things can wow. all precipitate a UTI. And so sometimes just for urinary tract infection's sake, we give patients vaginal estrogen outside of them even being sexually active, right? Because mm-hmm. they get irritated a lot. But so that, that atrophy, again, what most people refer to as dryness because it seems easier to use the word dry. Um, the reason I'm a stickler about trying not to say dry is that if you, if I tell you it's dry, then you say, well, what? I just will use, a, I'll use a lubricant, right? I mean, my skin is dry. I'm going to use a lubricant. That's right. going to work, right? And right. then once again, you're led down the road of thinking that it's you who's crazy because you've used a lubricant, but you're still having pain during sex. 
there must be something dreadfully wrong with you. And you just don't want to talk about it because you're embarrassed or you think there's something right that you're unique. Good news is you're not unique because your vagina is not actually really dry. In fact, if you still get stimulated, you can still lubricate on your own. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you might use a lubricant like coconut oil, which is an excellent lubricant, by the way, because that will help make it a little bit more um, emollient and it's a little bit more moisturizing, but the lack of elasticity is what's going to make it hurt during sex. And so that can only really be fixed either by vaginal estrogens or vaginal DHEAS, which are kind of analogous because there's not that many forms of DAEHS. Or there are some of those vaginal procedures, much like your skin, that stimulate collagen. So there's radio frequency and laser procedures, just like for the skin that we do. There's also ones you can do for your vagina, which are annoyingly called vaginal rejuvenation. Which I was just should- going to say, is that the vaginal rejuvenation thing? I had no idea what it was. And that's it's, yeah. I'm and I'm like very conflicted about it because the whole world of vaginal rejuvenation seemed really like insulting and stupid, right? Yeah. Like I don't need my vagina to be rejuvenated to look good for someone yeah. else. I need yeah. it to look well if yeah. I want to use it. And so again, it really appealed to like, making women feel shameful about. Yes. It, it, felt, it sounds still like a vanity right. thing. Well, it is because, because the way it's touted tends to only address the appearance, yes. right? Make yes. it taut so it looks good. Yeah. Now the truth is like, I've always said, if they came up with the same procedure, but it helped with atrophy, then I think it's very legitimate. And they finally have, I mean, there are some of those probe procedures that actually really stimulate collagen and they really make the, the labia and the vagina plumper and more elastic. The downside is not every doctor performs them because insurance does not cover it because they don't give a crap about our dry vagina. I mean, the one-two punch to me would be in a perfect world that women could get that procedure for their labia and vagina so that it's more elastic coupled with vaginal estrogen. Okay. But again, it's not, unfortunately it's too expensive. It's prohibitive because it's like two or $3,000 to have. Yes. I I know. I know. And I don't so the vaginal estrogen, yes. you, you love it because I love it because I I've decided in my life, like I love things that are actually widely accessible and will help almost everyone with the complaint. That's why I love vitamin D3. Like I can say yes. to any woman who walks into my office, unless you're walking around naked, you are low <laughs> in D3 and it's going to help some part of your body. So I love it. It's easy. Like okay. I'm actually I'm actually lazy in that way, right? The reason I love estrogen is because like we said about vasomotor symptoms that over the course of like five years-ish after menopause, you're probably going to improve with your hot flashes and night sweats unless you're in surgical menopause. But in contrast, your vagina and your labia are only going to get more and more and more atrophic the farther you get from menopause. So if you go through menopause at 51, I can say to you by 55, 56, hopefully your hot flashes will stop. But I can also say- by the way, your vagina is probably going to get drier and drier and drier. And if you wow. think about it, it makes sense because historically, if we look at nature, well, first of all, I was supposed to be dead at 51, right? Like I'm, you and I are 51 and we weren't supposed to live this long, mm-hmm. but also historically we weren't sexually active past menopause, right? Mm-hmm. But now that our world is different and we should and can be sexually active past menopause, we absolutely deserve to have our labia and our vagina feel better and we shouldn't just suffer through it. So I like estrogen because I can predict that the majority of women need it if they are postmenopausal and if they are sexually active. And so the upside is it really will work. The upside is it is incredibly safe. Like even women who have breast cancer can use vaginal estrogen. Wow. 
They shouldn't use oral estrogen, but they can use vaginal estrogen. And that's a huge misconception, even among doctors who take these women off of their vaginal estrogen or don't let them use it. And then these women are over. And it's really too bad because it means that their doctors are, and it's not even like they're not up to date. I mean, this data has been out for a long time and it is consistently confirmed through multiple trials that vaginal estrogens are safe. Yeah. Two questions. Yeah. Can one take vaginal estrogen or utilize vaginal estrogen uh, in perimenopause if they are suffering, you know, painful sex, UTIs? Also, I, this has nothing to do with libido, correct? Okay. Correct-ish. So I'll answer the first well, question. In that, in that, if, you know, painful sex is going to decrease your desire. Yes. But, yes. but it's not going to increase your desire in the same way that HRT might. Yes. Well, let me answer the first question because it's easier. So okay. yes, okay. for perimenopausal, by the way, perimenopausal, prolonged birth control, like hormones, like combined pills for a long time can also cause some atrophy. And nursing. So when you're breastfeeding or nursing, you're low on estrogen, just like during menopause, which is why we hot flash and sweat when we're nursing and your vagina might be dry. And if you want to have sex when you're nursing, which is actually, it's very natural to not want to, but if you want to, you can use vaginal estrogen then. So perimenopause, postmenopause, unprolonged birth control pills or nursing. Those are all women who are candidates for vaginal estrogen. Okay. okay. Um, now the libido question is hard, right? Because libido is so multifactorial. You talk to Kelly Casperson. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Women's libido is so incredibly challenging. Okay. It's not just like men where like you need blood supply to your penis and then you walk around erect because you have testosterone. Mm-hmm. For women, a lot of the time, it, I mean, this is where I always joke like the sad but but true truth. And again, it makes me feel better that we're not alone. When Kelly Casperson and I talked about it, I was laughing that The data shows that when you're with your partner, whether you're with a man or a woman for more than five years, your libido often goes away, meaning it's not really your libido. It's your spontaneous desire. Right. And we walk around as women thinking it's my libido. libido." (laughs) Libido is perfectly fine and intact and it could be stimulated. But what we women actually need is a little bit of newness. Yeah. I don't know what we do with that because we're in long-term relationships. Right. But, But that is true. So if we can fix your vaginal atrophy by making your vagina more plump and more supple and less painful that will indirectly help you at least not want to avoid sex. And the truth is now that we know that your clitoris is not just that little nubbin of tissue. Do you know this? Yes. That we used to think that your, your clitoris was just a little nubbin at the top. Yes. And now we know, right. That it goes yes. down your labia, that actually it's got like uh, even a little bit of a stalk that goes up into your vagina, which might explain the G spot, right? Yes. We learned that do- Dr. Lori Mintz. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So it's amazing. So now that we know that the clitoris is so much more robust, if you imagine that, then maybe getting your vagina to be more elastic and plump might actually also help your libido physiologically, not just psychologically, right? So yes, it can indirectly help, but you're correct that it's not like, I still joke that like, I still wish there was a pill I could give me and all of you that's like gonna magically make us wanna walk around having spontaneous desire again, like when we were in a new relationship. I hesitate to say like when we were younger because I I joke, but like if any of you know, like all your friends who are in new relationships at 55, they're walking around wanting to have sex. And it's not because they're younger, 
because they're in a new relationship. Yeah. Um, um, one last question about vaginal estrogen. Is this something that you apply daily and yes. is it cumulative and it's a fact or is it like you apply it, you know, Good. That's a good question. And actually, I think it's really important to understand this part because if you don't, then there's a lot, then people stop using it and they think it didn't work. Yes. So when I prescribe it, this is why I'm always running behind in my office, people, because I have to <laughs> So I always say the upside of vaginal estrogen is that if you use it, it will work. But the downsides, one, insurance might not cover it. They do not care about your dry vagina. Even oh, though the liver Viagra, up until recently, Medicare covered Viagra, wouldn't cover estrogen. So that you might not be covered, but if you use the cream in particular, one tube will last two, three months. So even if it costs 80 or a hundred dollars, which isn't a lot, but it'll last a couple of months. So that's one downside is that it might not be covered. Second downside is that the package insert will still say risk of breast cancer and heart attack and clot. And it's because they're quoting the oral data. And they should have removed it, but they haven't removed it from the labeling. So you have to just trust your doctor when she tells you it's safe to take because there's so much data supporting that it's safe because it doesn't get into your system. Fantastic. And the third downside is that you have to use it regularly. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to have sex tonight. I'm going to use my estrogen. It's you have to use it regularly. Typically, if you're using the cream, you'll use it twice a week regularly. Mm -hmm. It takes about six weeks to fully kick in. And even after that six weeks, when patients say like, how long do I have to use it for? I say, as long as you think you want to use your vagina. Right. (laughs) And so it's not much, it's not cumulative after the six weeks, but it takes six weeks to kick in and then you have to maintain it. And this is how I describe it. Since you and I are 55, we want our skin to be elastic, right? Mm -hmm. We notice that our skin is a little bit more dry and a little bit more like, you know, gaggly. Yeah. Now, if we moisturize it, that's going to help. It'll make it a little bit more, but what'll make it really supple is things like on our skin, it'll be like retin-A, vitamin C, things that make it more elastic. Yes. So same with your vagina. You're going to use something to moisturize it like coconut oil or actual vaginal moisturizers, Mm -hmm. but you need something that's going to penetrate into the tissue and make it more elastic. And that's where the estrogen really works. And And there's, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, there's the cream, there's a vaginal tablet, there's a vaginal suppository, and there's a vaginal ring. Of all of them, I'll let patients try whichever, just depending on a few different factors, like, you know, what's covered by insurance, what they think sounds good. But I'll tell you, having tried all of them, I really think the vaginal cream works the best because it has the most coverage where it covers like your labia, your vagina, your urethra. Um, But the only group that has to be a little bit more cautious is if you have had breast cancer, your oncologist would ask you to use the vaginal tablet or vaginal suppository or ring first because you can't mess up that dose. Whereas okay. with the cream, what if you use too much? If you use too much cream, then in theory, it could get systemic, right? Interesting. But but in, in theory or in actuality, is it living in and on the vagina and that's it? It's not- well, when, You can't live on the vagina, right? Because remember the vagina is inside. It's the tube inside. Right, I'm sorry. I'm thinking- I'm gonna show you my little, this is my yeah. little model. That was your vagina. That's inside. <laughs> Right. This is the uterus, yes. the cervix. This is inside. It's going to live. Well, there's no labia on this. It's going to, it's going to live on the labia and yeah. in the, it's not going to live there. Meaning you're going to squirt the cream in with the applicator. Or frankly, I tell patients after like a couple of weeks that you understand what dose to use, mm-hmm. you just put it on your finger instead of the applicator. Mm-hmm. And like, if this is your labia, you put it on your labia up in okay. your, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's going to absorb within that first couple hours. Right? right. Like I usually say, use it twice a week at night because then you go to sleep and it'll absorb. 
Um, but yeah, if you use too much, it could get into your system, but that's why I'm very specific with my patients about like what dose to use. How much? Okay. Um, wait, and sorry, one more thing. Go ahead. I'm going to also know if you're taking systemic hormones, like hormone replacement, it still might not help your vagina. So many women get confused, no fault of their own. Their doctors even steer them the wrong way. Well, you're taking hormone replacement, like for your hot flashes, it should help your vagina. Ironically, hormone replacement doses, which are systemic doses, still don't seem to act on the end organ of your vulva. So you really need topical cream for that. I don't think I knew that. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, Okay. You have brought up, I have brought up um, various kinds of cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering if you can talk about um, certainly your own personal experience, should you wish. Um, and also are breast cervical ovarian cancers related at all to aging, to perimenopause, to menopause, if you could get, get, um, take us through that a little bit. Um, and are there signs that women should be aware of? And, you know, when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking, how would I know other than breast examinations and mammograms about breast cancer, much mm-hmm. less ovarian, cervical, and so on. So no, I mean, we could lot. have a whole discussion on this. I know. I'm sorry. I, 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 it's okay. Listen, you know, I love to talk about it. I will nugget it down. And this is how okay. I can best describe it. Again, getting back to my theory of like low-hanging fruit, I want what's easiest, right? Like, I don't want to worry about the esoteric weird thing that I can't prevent that I can't find. I want to be like, well, let me, let me make sure I can take care of the things that I can take care of. Mm -hmm. So as a woman and as a human with breasts and uterus and ovaries, I don't know I'm going to have a uterus and ovaries, but if I did, I know that my screening test that I can do to keep myself healthy, I can do my screening mammogram, meaning with no symptoms, I can make sure that starting at least at 40 maybe at 35, depending on risk factors, I'm going to do my mammogram once a year, right? Mm-hmm. And if I do that once a year, every year, I could not say to you as a, pa- as a patient, like, oh, you won't get breast cancer if you do it every year. I can say, listen, millions of women still get breast cancer, but if they're keeping up with doing it yearly, they right. likely will find their cancer early, especially if in between they're doing just a self-breast exam. We now call it breast self-awareness, meaning once a month, just feel inside your armpits, make circles around your breasts, just with the idea that you're getting to know your breasts. So that if in between your mammograms, something feels different, you calmly call your doctor and then she'll help decide, do you need an exam, an ultrasound? What else do you need? And if you do that, again, it doesn't mean you're not going to get cancer, but it means that most likely you'll find it early. And all we can hope for is finding things early, trying to prevent the things we can, but also trying to find the things that we can early so that we're all going to be okay. So mammogram once a year after 40, for sure. Again, maybe earlier, depending on risk factors. Second of all is, is cervical cancer, which has nothing to do with age. In fact, while breast cancer does have to do with age, as we get older, our risk increases. Good news is as we get older, the likelihood of death from breast cancer decreases. Like if you get breast cancer when you're 70 and you've been going regularly, you still need it treated, but it's very unlikely to be really detrimental and harmful because it's going to be less aggressive, most likely. Cervical cancer has nothing to do with age. Cervical cancer has to do with HPV exposure, which 90% of us have HPV. If you're seeing your gynecologist, which you should be doing every year, she will help decide with you what interval to get your pap smear. Pap smears can be done anywhere from one to five year intervals, depending on 
what your prior history with pap smears is, what your risk factors are. And that's a confusing thing for women because they might hear, oh, I don't need a pap smear more than every one to five years. So they skip seeing their doctor, which they shouldn't. In other words, you should see your doctor every year for an annual exam. One part of your annual exam is your pap smear. But women tend to kind of think that the only thing you go for is your pap smear. So if they hear they don't need it every year, they skip. And you shouldn't skip because you want your doctor to talk about these things with you, to do a breast exam, to talk about your vaginal atrophy, and to talk about like what other screening tests you need. Ovarian cancer is the hard one because we have zero screening for ovarian cancer. Meaning when you see the gynecologist and she does your pap smear, that is only screening for cervical cancer. Okay. When she feels inside your vagina by like putting her hand inside and then pushing on your pelvis, she's ideally trying to feel for any enlarged masses, but in the absence of feeling an enlarged mass, she can't really She can't say much other than I don't feel anything enlarged. It doesn't mean that you don't have something. So unfortunately, there's no screening yet for ovarian cancer, which is why I chronically say to people all the time, if you have bloating or pain or pressure that lasts more than two weeks, don't be paranoid, but be proactive. Call your gynecologist and ask for a pelvic ultrasound. That's not a screening test. That is now a diagnostic test because now you've had symptoms, but we don't have any screening again. It's so important that women know that. It doesn't mean be scared. It means just be really vigilant about your symptoms and don't blow them off because we know from all the data that women tend to blow off their symptoms in their pelvis for up to six, which is why we find it late. Um, And then the last one we should touch upon is colon cancer because the screening guidelines used to be start at 50, but now the screening guidelines start at 45 for men and women because we've noticed an increase in colorectal cancer, even in patients without a family history. So talk to your doctor and get your colonoscopy started at 45, unless your annoying insurance company doesn't cover it, which they should, but they might not. Mm-hmm. But those are like the basic screenings you can do for cancers. In addition to like seeing your internist every year to make sure they screen for your thyroid and cholesterol. And again, you could do all that and still get sick, but at mm-hmm. least if you're doing those, you're eliminating a lot of the big ones or at least finding them early. Like in my case, because I know the signs and symptoms, I found my my ovarian cancer at stage two, which is why, you know, five years later, I'm, I'm fine. And I'm here. I mean, it doesn't mean I didn't have to go through a lot with sure. chemo surgery, but I'm okay. And now I can like, you know, proselytize about it to you guys. And just, That's amazing. Me. so you had, you were, had symptoms that you recognized to be, yeah, I mean, I had pain and this is why when patients have pain, but they say to me, well, I pain, but don't you think it's just you know, don't you think it's just my period? Don't you think it's just perimenopause? Don't you think it like, there's all the like, don't you think it's just that? And can't we write it off? And my response will always be, I think it's likely nothing, but we're going to check it out. Because if I just say, I think it's likely nothing, full stop. I'm hedging my bets. I'll usually win the bet, but I'll lose that bet a couple of times. And like, that's not worth it. Right. I, I so appreciate your hearing that. And I just sort of bring it back for a moment to the beginning of our conversation when we spoke about advocating for yourself, yeah. this, is, this is a critical thing for women to not only sort of practice and rehearse and yes. execute, but also understand that um, we're, we're sort of comfortable being uncomfortable a lot of times, I think. Oh, yeah, right? so, you, you said that so well, and it's, and it's too bad in a way. I mean, it's what makes us strong, but yes. we don't recognize when we shouldn't allow ourselves to be strong when it comes to physical. Yeah. Yeah. So, so being able to home in on yourself consistently, sort of check in with yourself internally, externally from top to bottom 
is so important to do. And if there are red flags for you, appreciate them as that. And what you always say, which I love, love, love is don't panic. Don't get, you know, out of your mind about something, get information that makes all the difference. That's Um, why I always say proactive, but not paranoid. And I think that you know, again, I could talk till I'm blue in the face about how sad I am about the medical system and just how broken it is. Because I think that the problems become that because doctors are busy and it's not their fault. None of us want to see 32 patients a day. We want to see 20, but then we can't like keep our lights on because insurances don't reimburse for it. So because of that, then when women come in, the doctors have to kind of quickly assess, decide everything's okay. Say like, oh, I know you have that symptom, but we did this test and you're fine, period as opposed to the kind of greater, bigger discussion, which is let's collaborate and let me explain to you that you're fine because we did X, Y, Z. But if you're still having ABC symptoms, let's ferret it. Let's, let's look into it further. Or how about you give yourself two weeks of seeing how you feel? And if it doesn't get better, then come back and see me. Like we need to have more of that nuanced discussion where we remind women to have faith in themselves and their symptoms and have intuition. And we remind women to like, come back and talk to me if it's not better. But instead the way the medical system works is like, you said you had pain. I did an ultrasound. You were fine, period. And yet we still have no explanation for the pain. And maybe it's nothing onerous, but no one has convinced me that I'm okay. And so what women unfortunately need is to advocate for themselves. And it's not because like, I'm going to keep saying, it's not because doctors are jerks. Like they really want to do what's right, but they just don't have the resources and the time to always explain it. So you as women have to advocate for yourself and find that person or that doctor or multiple doctors who will collaborate with you. Yeah. Uh, which is not easy, you know? No, I mean, you really just segued into my, into my final, um, you know, discussion, but, or question, which, which is really about um, decreasing the anxiety of, of your patients and sort of how we do that. You're, I'm, I'm assuming that your many years in practice is sort of alerted and made you sensitive to this and you you're an OB so you're also you know you're seeing women who are you know for the better part of a year getting ready to have a baby and that's 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 can be scary and and so what was it that kind of had you pivot you know very in a very pointed way it to this um, need to kind of give women you know this sense of like you can do it. You're okay. You know, you well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think daily today, I think I met this new patient who's so sweet. And she said, she's like actually the paradigm that has pushed me towards this. Mm. She said, and this was about pregnancy and COVID vaccine. I'm just so scared. Mm. I live in fear of that. So I hear these words coming out of women's mouth every day. And it could be about anything. I live in fear of that. I am not going to get pregnant. I live in fear that I'm going to get COVID. I live in fear that I'm going to hear the words you've got cancer. I live in fear. This is a big one. I live in fear that I'm going to find out I have herpes or HPV, right? Like women are living in fear of things that I'm like, hold the phone, ladies. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It is common. I don't want you to like, don't like live in fear of things that happen all the time that unfortunately we're fearful of because we don't know that many of these things are common, that yes, these things are uncomfortable. I mean, I joke all the time, like, I'm not going to say these things don't suck, right? But within the suckage, if we understand these things, they don't have to be so bad. And yeah. then you don't have to live in fear, like save your fear. You know, I, one of my things I say, one of my isms is fear should be relegated to the time that you're being chased by an animal in the wild. Right. If right. you are constantly triggering fear every day and that cortisol reaction, you're blunting your body's response and ability to really 
trigger fear when it needs it, but also you're, you're stimulating too much cortisol and that's not healthy. Instead, let's acknowledge like life is anxiety provoking, right? I mean, and so I think me going through like all the things I've been through between like cancer and miscarriages and weight and like all the things, endometriosis, I think it's just helped me recognize like, listen, I've had a lot of stuff that sucked and yet here I am still like actually feeling pretty happy and healthy. And, and so if I was fearful of it, I could really create such a bad feeling like, God, I had ovarian cancer. I had endometriosis. My oldest son had a stroke intrauterine, like, right. I could make everything so bad because the fear would overtake me. Instead, I feel like, okay, I got to acknowledge these things happen. I am not going to sugarcoat it and say, we're all getting through it. scot-free. I'm in fact going to say the opposite stuff is going to happen to all of us. But the sooner we recognize that if we catch these things early and we keep our wits about us, that we can actually live an amazingly healthy, long life, whatever length that life is for us, then it will just make it better. To consistently live in fear is not helping you. It's harming you. It's making you feel worse. It's probably making you sicker. And it's making the situation so inflamed that the minute you hear you have to come back for an abnormal mammogram or like, God forbid you have early stage breast cancer. You're like, oh my God, my worst fear came true. When in reality, I would rather say to you, wait a minute, your worst fear is stage one breast cancer, which you can be cured by and live into your nineties. Why would you be fearful of that? Mm. Save your fear for like the really bad shit that I can't fix. Right? Yeah. I, I feel weepy because I just adore you so much. And I, I, I so want for all of us to walk away from this conversation feeling um, extraordinarily empowered by our own capacity to get through things to share with one another, you know, so much of your sharing and your going live and your, you know, sort of tamping down our anxieties is speaking, I think, again, to this, like this shame thing that not only are we making ourselves sicker because we're not, we're like out of our minds about stuff, but we're also not sharing that much about some of these things. Right. Please get out there. I love that you're doing it because this is what I say all the time. The women in my office, like I always say, I'll have groups of women who are all best friends who all see me. I clearly can't discuss them with each other. Right. But I know what every single one of them is going through. And I know that every single one of them is going through things that the other ones are going through, but they're not talking about they're it. Even talking. if best friends sometimes. And I feel like yeah. ladies, yeah. if you don't want to be public, like Rachel and I, who are like all over Instagram, yeah. talking about yeah, it, it. you don't have to be public. But I do think there's value in being open, even if it's like with two people and your sister and like whoever it is, like be open because the minute we all are open and bond, we all feel so much better. I mean, the worst thing is to be going through something and think you're the only one going through it. That is to me the worst, for sure. The minute I hear like, everybody wants to kill their children sometimes. I'm I'm not an ogre. Oh my God. Yes. I want to, I want to, you know, wrap up very shortly. I just want to look at the comments if I can. Um, The first is my teenage daughter. I I won't get this. Schwannoma. Thank you. Tumors. And they say research is showing vitamin D3 can help with tumor growth. Um, That sounds like a positive comment. Yeah. And honestly, like there's pretty much nothing that, I mean, I joke, if you guys saw my big fat Greek wedding where the dad is like, Windex is going to help with everything. I feel like vitamin D3. It's very hard to overdose. It's really unlikely you'll get kidney stones from it. Like it's pretty easy. It's not like calcium where you have to take it twice a day, divide it, right. dose, take it all at once. It's like a gimme. 
Excellent. Yeah. Um, this, this is another uh, a question. Can you use vaginal estrogen while using estrogen patches? Also, is there a preferred brand? Okay. So yes, because again, estrogen patch is systemic hormones, meaning I'm having hot flashes, night sweats, bone density loss, and I'm taking the pill by mouth or a patch or some of the creams that you put on your arm, for example, those are all meant to help systemic symptoms. Okay. Absolutely. I advocate for them, but you have to use them judiciously because of the risk, the legitimate risk of breast cancer, stroke, heart attack, and blood clot. It's not a high risk, but there are risks. And that's why not everyone will use hormone replacement. Um, whoever asked that, I'm assuming and hoping is also on progesterone because you need to take progesterone if you're on estrogen to stop the small, but present, excuse me, risk that the estrogen will cause thickening of the lining of your uterus. So unless this person has had a hysterectomy, which is possible, if you've had a hysterectomy, you can just use estrogen. If you've had, if you have your uterus, you need estrogen and progesterone together. And again, that patch is going to help with those other symptoms, but not with your vagina. So yes, you can also use topical vaginal estrogen. And I'm the brand, there's actually only two brands. There's Premarin cream and Estrace cream. And now Estrace has the generic estradiol vaginal cream. So there's three creams, but two of them are two of them are brand and one generic owned by a brand. But then there's a vaginal tablet that also has a generic. There's a vaginal ring that I think also has a generic. There are vaginal suppositories that are D-H-E-A-S that convert into estrogen. So there's different formulations. Okay. Um, what's next for you? So Tribe Called V is my background. Oh, this is like the opposite. Yes. Uh, well, honestly, so in January, as you know, I love the gynecology. Like this to me is where my passion lies. We're like, I really do want women to understand more because the, the truth is none of this is even that complicated if someone just explains it to you. And imagine how eye-opening it would be if you grew up knowing that like, oh, around 40, 41, I might start getting hot flashes. I'm not going to freak out. Like, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if you knew when you were like, 16, 17, that like when you embark on your sexuality, that like there's a clitoris and that your boyfriend or girlfriend should understand yes. that they don't, that like you shouldn't have sex with them. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. Right? So wouldn't it be great to know that like herpes and HPV, super common, please don't freak out. 90% of us carry HPV, yes. really common. Like, like, so my point about all that is, so that's what in January, when I stop being the gynecologist in my office, I'm stopping <laughs> purposefully because I feel like I can you know, in a more widespread way through platforms like this or Tribe Called V, I can help teach women. And then hopefully women will teach other women and like, it'll just, you know, and so on and so on. So I'll still be doing obstetrics because it's just, I love it. But more importantly, just logistically in my practice, I can do that kind of all in one week and then not do it for two or three weeks. Um, And then I'll be just out there trying to talk about the vagina more and all the things. I mean, there's so many things like the list is not exhausted, but it's long, like endometriosis again, PCOS, all these things they, we really need. To I know there's about. so much, there's so much left to talk about. And I hope that I can call on you again. when Always, you're- always honey, because honestly, okay, it is such a service that you are doing this outside of the medical profession, right? Like I do think those of us in the medical profession have to do it, but I think that people who are outside of the medical profession who are getting it right. Like, I'm so glad whenever I hear you talk about it, I feel like you actually really get it. Oh. And you and you don't say things in a way that are wrong, which is really valuable because there's a lot, unfortunately, like my caution to people would be, there are a lot of, um, you know, self-proclaimed gurus out there. Yeah. Especially now, now that we have social media, it's good or bad. And they can really lead people down the wrong path of spending a lot of money on supplements, a lot of money on like, 
things that aren't proven. And it's one thing to say, try these, there's no harm, might work, it might not. There's another thing to like malign the birth control pill and make women feel bad that they've taken it and instead tell them they have to detox off the pill. Like that is just capitalizing Mm -hmm. on women's discontent with Western medicine. And that is not fair. That is like, that is just dirty and doing a disservice to us, right? Because it's creating more of a fractured rift between doctors and patients. Absolutely. I love that you do that. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate hearing that because I, I know all of what I don't know, but I, I, I know that I, you know, platforms like this can act as a conduit, um, between, you know, women and, uh, you know, real educators. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to you. I don't want to let you go, but I know I have to let you go because you're ending a very long day. Um, thank you so much. I adore you. And, um, everybody does here. And I just, I can't thank you enough for your time and this incredible amount of information. Um, if you take anything away from this call, please take away that, um, you know, anxiety does not need to sort of rule your roost. Uh, there is help out there. There is information out there. Be mm-hmm. patient, be mm-hmm. proactive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's super happy. Um, thank you so much. You guys, and thank I you. Feel incomplete. Listening. Cause like, I really just want to throw my arms around you. I always say, I, whenever I see you, I say, Oh, I just want to jump in your lap, but I do. I do. And so I, really, feel- I, I, I adore that. I adore you. And I really do like, I'm so grateful for women who want to like really listen and learn, it makes yeah. such a difference, you know, like, and think about how much more we could do if we all talk openly about this, right? Well, like if everyone on this, on this call today goes home and says, Oh my God, look what I learned and talks openly about like their dry vagina or the fact that like, yeah. it's not their libido. It's actually just that like, I love my partner, but I've been with them for more than five years. Like all those things, right? Yeah. There's so much, or just even tell people that the pap smear does not check for ovarian cancer. Like there's so many little nuggets. That Holy crap. Have- I mean, there's so, there's so much here. And I, I, you know, finally, as sad as I am that you will not be my gynecologist anymore. I am so excited to see what's in store because your voice should just be amplified globally. So I'm, I am. Well, you all can help. So follow us at Tribe Called V and regular Instagram is Big Love Fierce Juju. And I really like my biggest ask, I guess, is just to help spread the word about you and about me and about Perry and all the, you know, anyone who's talking about this stuff, I think is valuable. So thank Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank thank you so much. Thank you guys for, uh, for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Grofani again. Thank you. I know. I'll never say, I'll never say. I know, you know, you can say she, let's do a quick screenshot. I won't put, I won't, I won't put everyone else. I'll just do you and I, cause I don't know for privacy. I don't know how to do that for my life. Um, hold on. You hold on. I'm, I'm not very tech savvy, but this is the one thing I've learned. That's, that's more, that's okay. More. Ready? Count of three. One, two, three. And don't worry. I'm not putting anyone else's in there because I don't know about privacy issues. So, um, all right. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Love you. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Perimenopause What the F podcast. The perimenopause journey can be lonely and it doesn't have to be that way. Make sure to download our free Perry app to connect with perimenopause warriors in the same stage of life. See you next time, Perry sisters.